Love Letters Between Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi Presented by Catherine Bucknell Simon Callow as Christopher Isherwood Alan Cumming as Don Bacardi Music by Edmund Jolliffe If you like this podcast and think more people should hear it, please rate it, review it and subscribe to it. Episode 5 Pandora's Box David Hockney settled in Los Angeles in 1964. When he and Chris met, they took to each other straight away. They were both from the north of England. They were both resolutely anti-establishment. Light-hearted, merry, curious, interested in the new, obsessive workers, exceptionally gifted, exceptionally intelligent. I could go on about what they had in common. With Don... Hockney shared the fact of being a painter, and they sometimes painted or drew together. They all three became close friends, and they saw each other all the time. Chris and Don took a special interest in Hockney's love affair with a Californian art student, Peter Schlesinger, 18 when Hockney met him. It was just a little like their own love affair. When Chris was away in Austria and England in 1967, Don had sent an entertaining letter about their circle at home. October the 23rd, 1966, Santa Monica. Dearest Pony, Kitty entertained again this week with a pot of his famous chili. David Hockney brought Peter Schlesinger, who had flown down from Santa Cruz in hushed secrecy just to be with David. Apparently, the affair really is an affair now. David, in his indiscreet show-off way, let me read a letter from Peter with statements to the effect of, I want to see you be with you, hug you, and kiss you. At least they seemed to be making headway. Peter was also more talkative at dinner. John Goodwin, I know, would love to read A Meeting by the River. If you would like me to send it to him, enclose a small note to him in your next letter so that I can put it with the manuscript when I send it. He would also love to read Morgan Forster's Morris, but you have probably got that in the bank vault. I am reading, or rather wading through, John's The Idols and the Prey. It is very, very tedious work. What a vast improvement the second book is. Kitty saves the Journal of a Dub, B.C., for dessert. And what delicious dessert it is. Saw Gerald Hurd again on Friday. He looked and talked well in spite of a slight slurring every once in a while and a just noticeable difficulty in completing some thoughts and sentences after his stroke. He was gloating over having found out that Aldous Huxley used to have quite bad trips with LSD, which he never told Gerald about. Swami is in Laguna now and is taking walks around the garden three times a day. Jack Allen and Hal Buckley invited me up to dinner one night last week with Gavin Lambert and two semi-attractive guys named Ray and Rod, one of whom was taken by Hal into the bedroom at the end of the evening and joined soon after by Jack, leaving Gavin and me to let ourselves out without any send-off. It was a tacky, debauched, extremely low-class evening, which was nevertheless amusing. The amyl nitrate was passed around as though it were potpourri. If Kitty doesn't go with Nellie Carroll to see an Andy Warhol film called My Hustler tonight, he will stay home alone, thinking of and missing his old hide, as usual, 
and looking forward to his return to Kitty's humble basket. With a kitten's dearest love and devotion, as always, Tabby. Morgan Forster had left the rights in his then unpublished gay novel, Morris, to Chris. Don was reading Chris's diaries up to 1953 BC before Cat. In the spring of 1968, Hockney offered to loan the animals his flat in Notting Hill. They didn't like to waste the opportunity, but Chris had twice recently been to England, and he had nothing more to do there for the time being. So on April 1st, 1968, Don flew to London for a two-and-a-half-week visit. He soon met Chris's new friend, Anthony Page. Page was directing John Osborne's play, Time Present, at the Royal Court, and he hired Don to draw portraits of the cast while they were still in rehearsals. So Don delayed his return from April 18th to April 22nd. Then he delayed it again. He moved out of Hockney's flat to Bob Register and Neil Hartley's. Don told Chris that he wasn't contacting London friends to tell them he was still in town. One of those friends was Marguerite Lampkin, a dainty and determined Southern belle who'd made a place for herself in Hollywood in the 1950s as a socialite and Southern dialogue coach. Marguerite Lampkin was a foundation stone on which the animals had built their life together, for she had provided Don with a room in her apartment where he could pretend to stay when, in 1953, as a vulnerable 18-year-old, he'd ventured out of his parents' home and moved in with Chris. Chris had introduced Don to Marguerite and her first husband, Harvard-educated screenwriter Harry Brown, on April 15, 1953. Don was later to write, She made me her disciple that very first night. Never before had I met anyone like Marguerite. She was gangly in a delicate, distinctly feminine way. That night she wore a bright red filmy chiffon dress with red spaghetti straps over her white shoulders and tinkling gold bracelets on her restless, thin wrists. Her mouth was ample and painted bright red. Her big eyes were unfocused and avid at the same time. Her faded blue irises dominated by enlarged black pupils and her eyelids and the faint circles under her eyes tinted a pale mauve. A spicy scent emanated as if from her secret interior. What enchanted me most, however, was her accent. Softly insinuating or dryly infected, her Louisiana speech expressed the smallest nuances and modulations. I felt not only liked by her, but intimately enfolded. She quickly became my best, most adored friend. Marguerite had been an acceptable chaperone to cover the blossoming Isherwood-Bacardi love affair because she was married. Then, when Isherwood's landlady, Evelyn Hooker, unexpectedly forbid the relationship to continue on her property, Marguerite and Harry Brown had briefly hosted both Don and Chris until they found a new place of their own. Evelyn Hooker was a professor of psychology at UCLA. She was studying the gay community in Los Angeles, and she was one of the first in her profession to present research 
showing that gays were psychologically normal. She gave a paper to this effect in 1956 and later published it. But she and her husband, a UCLA English professor, had feared for their reputation if boys as young as Don were seen going in and out of their garden house where Chris was living in 1953. She believed it put her work at risk. Marguerite had revealed no such fears. She knew how to manipulate social convention, and she enjoyed doing it, perhaps because she was a Southerner, perhaps because her brother, Hillier Speed Lambkin, was gay, and at home in Louisiana, he'd concealed this. Marguerite was married for the third time and settled in London. She and Bacardi were still close. In fact, when he arrived to borrow Hockney's flat, he first spent a couple of nights with Marguerite. So it was odd that he didn't tell her when he postponed his departure. It was also odd that he forgot to tell Chris about the death of Iris Tree. Iris Tree was probably Chris's closest and most longstanding woman friend. She was an English poet and actress married to an Austrian count, Friedrich Ledebour, who did cavalry scenes in Hollywood. With Ledebour, Iris had a son called Boone, and from an earlier marriage, another son, the screenwriter Ivan Moffat. She was a model for Charlotte in A Single Man. Maybe it was odd, too, that Don didn't attend Iris Tree's memorial service. His letters to Chris say that he was completely preoccupied by the difficult personalities involved in the royal court production, the maverick playwright John Osborne and the equally challenging Jill Bennett, star of the play, who was to become Osborne's fourth of five wives on the day the play opened. Tuesday, April 23rd, 1968, London. Dearest only angel horse, Kitty's longing for his hide is especially bad this morning. I so regret not getting on that plane yesterday. At the last minute, I decided it was so silly to rush off just in order to keep from paying another $90 when I'd already spent nearly $500 to get here and accomplished only one thing. The realization that his dear old nag is the one thing in the world that really matters to him. As if he hadn't realized that countless times before. Why do I have to keep doing these awful things just in order to remind myself of something I already know and have known for a long time now? Anyway, I did the only bit of good work since I've been here yesterday morning. The drawing of Jill Bennett, soon to be Mrs. Osborne, with my bags already packed and a cab waiting for me, and I knew if I left then I would never see the drawing again and they would probably make an awful muck-up of the post for which it was done. Now I realize I don't give a fuck what happens to the drawing. Anthony Page has said he will buy it and give it to the Osbournes for a wedding present, or the poster. As it turns out, the man in charge of designing the poster who I met yesterday afternoon is, I think, probably quite bright and will know what to do with the drawing. Anyway, I will see his roughs on Thursday and will at least be able to bring back a reproduction of the drawing to show Old Pony. Bob Register's place is quite nice. At least there is lots of light. 
but madly uncomfortable and inconvenient due to there being only one bathroom and due to the fact that he keeps all of his clothes in the closet of the bedroom in which I am sleeping so that I feel like I'm sleeping in a train station. Neil is away, I think with Tony Richardson in the south of France, but maybe coming back tomorrow. And Mrs. Potter, the cleaning lady whom you met, who, after exchanging half a dozen words with me, asked Bob if I were a friend of Mr. Isherwood's, is a finely wrought torture instrument for the nerves. I have had enough of servants here to last a lifetime. I have forgotten to mention to you both of the last times we talked on the telephone that Iris is dead since a week ago Saturday. A relatively painless but difficult death, apparently. She hung on determinedly up to the very last in spite of doctors doing nothing to keep her alive. Boone told me that on the Friday night before, it was obvious that she hadn't anything left to go on, but seeing that it was night, she asked him, Help me to wait till it's light, noonlight. She died at eleven the next morning. Neither Kate nor Ivan have made any ado about it. Both Friedrich and Boone were with her. There is much more to tell of minor interest, but I will wait till I see you. Your telegram was telephoned in this morning. The effort of just seeing people seems far greater since I've been here than ever before. I haven't called half the people I know. I don't even want to call Marguerite, who gets back today from Morocco to tell her I am still in London, though I'm afraid she might find out anyway. I will send a telegram to let you know my flight number as soon as I make a reservation. I will not do that before Thursday in case some unforeseen emergency arises concerning the posters. Both Bob and Anthony Page require a lot of resisting. They've suddenly developed a great concern about my welfare in London, born of a desire to please you on Bob's part, and I think guilt towards you about the Lulu plays on Anthony's part. Kitty dreams of his basket and longs to hook his claws into that dear, tough old hide. With all of a kitten's love. Fur. Kiss, 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 kiss. <laughs> By searching through his tiny little red day-to-day date books, I was able to discover that Chris had made a synopsis of Earth Sprite and Pandora's box during March. Don may have told Paige so, but Paige had been too busy with his Osborne play to do much about it for the time being. Still, Pandora's box was open, for Don and Anthony Page had become romantically involved. Don kept this a secret from Chris. By the end of April, he was obliged to warn Chris not to telephone him at Bob Register and Neil Hartley's, where he was supposedly now staying. Tuesday, April the 30th, 1968, London. Dearest love plug, a few hurried words to my only darling before taking Marguerite to lunch at a chic Italian restaurant on the King's Road, Don Luigi's. 
I finally called her yesterday to declare my lingering presence here. I was so afraid of running into her on the street, or even worse, her brother Speed. Though Speed and I have officially buried the hatchet, if we are to establish any semblance of genuine friendship, it cannot possibly begin with trust. The only other person I've called to say I'm still here is Patrick Woodcock. All the others I can't be bothered to take leave of again. Anyway, I'm so busy doing the drawings for the theatre, I barely have time for anything else. I showed the cast drawings to Anthony yesterday. He was enthusiastic about all but three, so I'm going to try to set up second sittings with each of the three actors, which shouldn't be difficult to do. Alas, the only drawing I've done of John Osborne is not right, and that really will be hard to redo. John is so elusive and grand, though still kind of lovable and funny in his feminine way, and looking better than I've ever seen him look, very slim with long flowing hair and a handlebar moustache, which isn't half as ludicrous as it may sound, especially since it camouflages his cruel little stung mouth. My drawings of Anthony Page are some of the best I've done here, though he is alarmed by the best one, and much more in favour of a weaker, more romantic-looking first drawing. He has been really kind and helpful to me, and now he has begun to talk about your working on a movie script of some idea he and a woman friend of his have for a thriller. I have to keep reassuring him that you like thrillers and don't feel they are beneath you, but I fear there is little chance of any real backing for the project, even if he does ask you to do it. He is very unreliable about money matters, his own as well as everybody else's. Later. Marguerite was well and undemanding. Her trip to Morocco had been quite a success, though it rained most of the time. We ran into Ivan Moffat's wife, Kate, at the restaurant. Deeply embarrassing, because I had not told her I was still in town, and Iris's memorial service was last Friday. I've not even seen Ivan since I've been here. I must fly off to the theatre to see a run-through of the play and set up sittings for tomorrow. I'm planning to get a reservation on the Monday flight. Should anything interfere, I will call you at the weekend. Sunday morning, in fact. But only if I can't come on Monday. Don't call me here except in an emergency. I feel very uncomfortable around Bob and Neil and so spend most of my time away. I miss my old Hyde terribly and think of him always and long to stroke that dear muzzle. With all of a kitten's loving heart. F. As I read this letter, I recognized the hectic tone, the frantic pace. This was how Don had concealed his meeting with Paul Millard in 1961. Chris must have recognized it, too. He must have sensed something was brewing beneath this busy surface. When Don decided to reveal to Chris that he was staying with Paige, he presented it as an uncomfortable makeshift arrangement, acceptable only while he reluctantly completed the portraits. And he mentioned as a kind of camouflage that Paige was caught up in a complicated affair with another man on the premises. 
Thursday, May the 2nd, 1968, London. Dearest sugar dub, old cat misses his angel horse so very much and thinks of him so much and pines pitifully for his warm basket with the huge hide cushion which comforts him so. But Kitty is being terribly fussed and rattled and dazed by all these showbiz people who keep plucking at his fur and spinning him around. What still has not been settled is whether or not I'm going to get another sitting with John Osborne. I am pushing for Sunday, in which case I can keep my Monday reservation. But he is so capricious and grand that nobody dares find out definitely. If it's a question of staying on a little while longer to draw him, I think I will. Also, then I can get back the originals of the drawings I've done of the cast, which I know I will never see again if I don't take them with me. Not that I mind so much about them, except for the one of Jill Bennett, but I don't even have any reproductions of them because I don't know of any place here to get them done. Oh, it is so uncomfortable and inconvenient and inefficient here. I can't tell you what I went through doing those first drawings. A nightmare. And here I am doing the same old portrait drawings I've been doing for years. I've already gotten bored by that very familiar Bacardi drawing. But at least I am better off doing that than I am doing nothing. I was so miserable those first few weeks here. At least now I have somewhere to go and something to do each day. I am staying with Anthony Page, 68 Ladbroke Grove, W11. I was so ill at ease at Bob and Neil's that I asked him if he would put me up for a few days. The place is very primitive, but still preferable to Bob's. And though much more inconvenient than Cadogan Square... I at least can get a ride into town in the morning when Anthony goes to rehearsals. He has been having an affair of many months with a guy named Norman who lives in the flat above with a lover. I've still not clapped eyes on him yet. All I know is that he's an actor turned real estate agent, which is more than enough to sink him as far as I'm concerned. But Anthony still suffers. I'm very fond of Anthony and he is fun to be with, except that much of the time he is so wrapped up in the play and rehearsals that he can't really concentrate on anything else. He still talks of the possibility of your writing this thriller for him, though I hear nothing that makes me think it might really happen. It could very easily happen if you were here. He is a terribly out-of-sight, out-of-mind person. Kitty is sorry for all these changes of plans. He feels so silly and scatterbrained and guilty because he remembers so many other times when he's behaved like this. But he trusts his dear rump will be patient with him and never forget that Kitty loves him more than anything or anyone in the world. I miss you so much and long to be near you and hold you and talk to you like I can talk to no one else. I will either call you or send a telegram on Sunday. With all my love, Farhart. The telephone here, if you don't have it, par 0560. Cadogan Square is a few blocks from the Royal Court, an easy walk. Page's flat in Notting Hill was probably 20 minutes away by car and longer by tube. The letter tells no lies, but it's a careful delivery of truths that avoids articulating the real emotional excitement of this new relationship.
When I was preparing the Isherwood Bacardi letters for publication, I contacted Page in hopes of getting his permission to reveal his identity. Chris had written about Page in his diaries, but I'd removed or rephrased anything suggesting Page was Don's lover. And Chris's biographer in the 1990s, Peter Parker, had also known but concealed Page's identity. In fact, I had already corresponded with Page when I was editing the diaries, and we met once, briefly, after a performance of Ibsen's Rossmerholm that he was directing. He was friendly, but distant, and I sensed that my mission to explore Chris's past made him nervous. But the letters between the animals wouldn't make sense if I concealed his identity again. So I contacted him once more. He asked to read the material, and eventually we met to talk about things in more detail. He turned out to be completely charming, just like Don. It isn't just about their good looks. Both are incredibly handsome in entirely different ways, even in their 80s. It's about their intensity, their ceaseless probing of what goes on beneath surface interactions between people, their fierce concentration on a line of thought, a line of argument, a line on paper, a line in a play. They don't let go of what interests them. They pursue it, chase it down till they own it, till they're satisfied. Neither one can be fooled by poor thinking or fake artistry. Neither one misses a hint, an implication, a gesture, a nuance. Both are filled with vitality and laughter. And both have a quality of sweetness, gentleness, concern for the contentedness and comfort of a companion that's seldom combined with such sharp intellect and ferocious concentration. When Chris met Page in 1966, he described him to Don as quite bold, youngish, rather nice. Page is 16 months younger than Don. I could see how at 34 and 33, they must have struck sparks. Lightning bolts, in fact. But by the time I came along to ask all about it, each was downplaying the emotional importance of the episode. After all, both ended up settling in successful long-term relationships with other people. Yet each was brave enough, reckless enough to let this past wildfire be reported now. Perhaps there's a natural decorum at play here. Until about 70 years old, people want to conceal their extramuros love affairs. After 70, they may need the world to know they had them. But I think it was something else. Both Page and Bacardi have spent their adult lives observing and one way or another commenting on human nature, and I think they considered themselves fair game. It was logical and somehow just that they, too, would be observed and commented on. They seemed to recognize that their relationship, as it slipped further into the past, had less and less to do with them personally and more to do with the understanding in a larger sense what the past had actually been like. How can we really understand human nature if we don't first reveal it accurately, if we hide the parts the world may find unattractive or immoral? Gay men who grew up pre-liberation did a lot of hiding. They should never have had to. Bacardi's openness, Page's openness, showed me a further step down this road. It's not necessarily to do with being gay. It's about being truly curious, fixed on getting at something we call truth, rather than settling for comfortable, conventional appearances. 
how did the relationship really work between a famous, accomplished, strong-willed, bossy man of 64 and a beautiful, talented, passionate, sensitive man of 34? How should such a relationship work? And what happened when Don met Paige? To get back to Don's letter admitting he was staying with Paige, Paige told me that the affair he had with the man who lived upstairs from him, actually a painter-turned-real estate agent, had been serious but was over by the time Don moved in. It had taken place while the man's partner was away. The reunited couple quarreling and lovemaking in the bedroom directly above his own spurred Paige to carry on an equally loud affair underneath something he now looks on as selfish and insensitive. Paige told me, sort of anxiously, that Don told him Chris didn't mind if Don had outside love affairs. Of course, I had no trouble believing this. Chris simply counted on the outside love affairs not to matter too much. My heart went out to all three of them for the long-ago pain, which Paige was now feeling again. These were not people who set out to hurt one another. These were people who wanted to explore life freely and who wanted to extend to those they loved the freedom to do the same. Another thing Paige told me was that Chris had made a pass at him one night when drunk. They'd been to see Chekhov's The Three Sisters at the Royal Court and out for Italian food, and Paige walked Chris back to Marguerite Lambkin's where Paige rejected Chris's advance on the doorstep. So Don wasn't the only one who found Paige attractive. As he moved into a powerful new emotional orbit, attending Paige's rehearsals most days as opening night approached, Don tried his hardest to sustain his relationship with Chris. He suggested that Chris, Paige, and even he as well, could all three work on a theater or film project together. If the Vatican sex plays didn't go forward, perhaps they could make the thriller. Wednesday, May the 8th, 1968, London. Beloved hoof. It is cold and rainy today. The company leaves for Brighton on Saturday for the Monday night opening. I think I will go down on Sunday evening or Monday morning because I have a sitting with Keith Vaughan on Sunday afternoon. Patrick Proctor I've not seen since the second day I was here when he said, let's have breakfast, lunch and dinner every day. I called him the next afternoon and got told he was busy and never heard from him again. He is in for a little sobering talk before I leave this place. I have not seen Tony Richardson again. He's been in the south of France most of the time. But did have a nice note from him in answer to a letter of praise I wrote to him about the charge of the Light Brigade, which I really did like a lot and am anxious to see again, though I am told it won't open in the US until October. There may be a showing of Anthony's inadmissible evidence on Friday. I'm very curious to know if he knows anything about making movies. He's been offered by Paramount here a movie based on a French thriller called The Praying Mantises. He has allowed his choice of a screenwriter with whom he would work on the script. There is no script as of now. He mentioned you without any prompting. He hasn't even read the book yet, but from what he's been told and what he's told to me, it sounds like a highly contrived melodrama involving two women and a man with strong dikey undertones. 
but he is so caught up with the Osborne play that he can barely think of anything else for more than a few seconds at a time. Jill Bennett has started getting panicky and hysterical. Hers really is a terribly long and difficult part, and the whole weight of the play is on her, and she's beginning to crack a little. She's now blaming Osborne for the difficulty of the part, saying it's unplayable and calling him a shit pig. This from Anthony, who spent last night with them. I had lunch with them on Sunday, and there were no signs of stress then, but the screws on her are getting tighter every day. I do like her, though, but I fear she may be no match for John. The enclosed is a picture of a poor lost tabby wandering the cold London streets on tiptoe to avoid the cruel puddles, all glassy-eyed with loneliness. If he were home in the stables, I hope his protecting dubbin would never let him go around in such a dreadfully baggy suit. Oh, he longs for his dear old pony. I'm sure if you can only get back to him, he'll never go wandering again. He thinks of his dear drub always and loves him so dearly. Kiss, 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 kiss. Small pause. I will send a telegram next week about flight home. P.S. Anthony has not yet read The Praying Mantises, but still talks of asking you to do it. I think it's a lot of fairly boring nonsense about really evil people with lots of French cynical psychology and endless ass-backwards contrivances thrown in for bad measure. But it still might make an amusing movie thriller. Simon and Schuster published it. If Anthony does ask you to do it, a kitten might lend a paw, if asked. That way the animals could put their heads together out of the basket as well as in. But you might hate it and think it unworkable. Anyway, we'll see. Furry. Don wrote his P.S. on a separate half-sheet to which he glued a picture of a pure white kitten. I sifted through the original letters again, and I began to see that the longer he stayed away from home, the more trouble he took to enclose in his letters glossy magazine pictures of helpless, damp-eyed kittens and cuttings about horses sent to the glue factory or, more kindly, put out to pasture. He must have spent hours combing magazines and papers for the photographs and articles. Once, Don had showed me his movie scrapbooks from childhood and youth, and he told me how much he enjoyed the hours spent guiding scissors around faces and figures. I've often thought this is why he can make such a bold, clear line with a paintbrush. His scrapbooks freed him from the boredom of home. They soothed the constant mild anxiety created by his father's irritableness and disapproval. Now, in London, it was as if he was cutting and pasting a scrapbook paradise in which nothing was awry, nothing changed, when in fact he was being taken over by feelings that had nothing to do with Chris, who was his adopted father, as well as his lover. Was this a betrayal, or was it at a distance of 6,000 miles from the basket a resourceful way to balance conflicting needs in his own life. 
He was having exactly the kind of sexual and romantic experiences Chris had had before the two of them met, and which Chris knew Don envied and desired. Meanwhile, he continued to make the necessary ritual observances to their household gods. I mean, to the animals. It wasn't unlike the way in which Chris kept up his meditation and prayers through periods of spiritual dryness in the hope that feelings of belief and refuge in Ramakrishna would return. Anyway, Chris himself still had love affairs, too, or at least plenty of sex with boys and men he found attractive. Sometimes he even had sex with people he didn't find all that attractive. He sent Don one very funny report of a date with a skinny maths professor. He is very closet, or rather, not even that, just restrained and somehow reserved for something, like a folded napkin. He played the piano to me afterwards, Brahms, quite fairly nicely, but not well. I imagine he would be good to draw. His face is rather endearing when playing, like a fish rising to the surface. The enormous advantage of mathematics is that it can't be explained, so one is excused from all that. On May 15th, Don sent Chris a long explanation of why he would not be home for his birthday. Delays in printing the theater program in which his drawings were being included. And he sent a rather harsh critique of Page's movie directing skills in inadmissible evidence, perhaps doing down his lover to boost Chris's morale. On May 18th, his birthday, Don assured Chris his return was imminent. The animals spoke on the telephone, and afterwards, Chris wrote in his diary. He said he had no date to go out to a birthday lunch or supper. His voice was so beautiful. It seemed full of tears and yet perfectly happy. I don't know really what I mean by this, but it was the impression I got. He says he will stay on for the opening of the John Osborne play in London and then leave and be here this next weekend. A voice full of tears. Perhaps Don was feeling torn by loving two people at once, and perhaps he was feeling cut off from home. Time present opened on May 23rd, but then on May 29th, Don wrote to say he had begun a set of drawings for a new Osborne play, The Hotel in Amsterdam, which was to open on July 3rd. He finally returned to Los Angeles on June 10th, two and a half weeks having become two and a half months. Through all this time, Chris never wrote a single letter to Don because he constantly expected him to return and because he wanted Don to feel the pressure to do so. Recently, I looked through Chris's day-to-day -day date books and I discovered he'd been tracking the intellectual content of Don's life more closely than Don realized. At home in Santa Monica, Chris read the Osborne plays that Paige was directing and he went to see Page's film of inadmissible evidence, rating it far more highly than Don did. While Chris was finding new ways to keep an eye on Don, he himself was being observed ever more closely by David Hockney, who had decided to make the Isherwood-Bacardi relationship the subject of a major painting. 
The Animals, a selection from the book The Animals, love letters between Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi, presented by Catherine Bucknell. Simon Callow as Christopher Isherwood, Alan Cumming as Don Bacardi. Music by Edmund Jolliffe. If you like this podcast and think more people should hear it, please rate it, review it and subscribe to it. Join us for episode 6, David Hockney's Giant Portrait, with a special appearance by David Hockney. The Animals Podcast is produced by Catherine Bucknell and Shani Erez. Recorded in London at the Rhythm Studio with James Carey and at Heavy Entertainment with David Roper. Post-production by Toma Run. Editing by Catherine Bucknell and Shani Erez. Website by Zenobi Purvis. Podcast conceived by Joe Rodota with Catherine Bucknell. We would like to thank the Huntington Library, San Marino, California and the Wiley Agency. Don Bacardi, Catherine Bucknell, Penguin Random House and Farah Strauss and Giroud donated rights for this podcast, which is underwritten by the Christopher Isherwood Foundation. Special thanks to cast and creatives for donating time to this podcast. Copyright Don Bacardi, Catherine Bucknell and The Animals Podcast 2017.